Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Historical Materialism. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. As capitalism's popularity wanes and socialism's popularity increases, there remains a massive shadow cast by the history of actually existing socialism, Stalin being the primary pillar. His violent rule in the form of secret police, staged trials, forced confessions, and suppression of liberation for workers both in the USSR and internationally, are regularly brought up as the inevitable endpoint of any political progress, socialist or otherwise. Environmental protections, affordable housing, universal health care, or even a guarantee of a modest living wage and social safety net today, gulags tomorrow. This is the dialectic of Saturn, a phrase that points back to Greek mythology in which Saturn devours his own children. This idea has been applied for over a century now to discuss and discredit revolutionary politics, whether from reactionaries seeking to protect private property or even self-described socialists unable to imagine things playing out in any other way. But was Stalinism the inevitable product of the Russian Revolution, and are all revolutions doomed eventually to turn on themselves, losing all the gains they might make in a self-destructive race to the bottom of Saturn's stomach? Douglas Green argues that this dialectic is really a pseudo-dialectic, a false narrative that has been imposed for over a century in his new book, Stalinism and the Dialectics of Saturn. Taking the dialectics of Saturn head-on, he spends the first several chapters surveying the ways in which this narrative has been developed and applied, taking on a massive collection of figures, from the Frankfurt School to Winston Churchill and back to Domenico Lacerdo, showing how a repressive totalitarianism is seen as the inevitable horizon of any revolutionary activity. The book then turns to the thought of Leon Trotsky, who offered a critique of Stalinism that managed to walk the tightrope of maintaining a materialist critique of Stalin that nevertheless continued to believe in revolutionary possibility. Thoroughly researched and covering a vast swath of historical and theoretical territory, The book not only tries to recover a lost political ideal, but brings to the forefront burning theoretical questions over the nature of history and reason, and whether or not we can ever escape our current moment in search of a new one, a topic that has been present in much of Green's writing, along with his collaborator Harrison Fluss, who contributed the foreword to this book. I'll include a couple links in the show notes for those who want to read more. Now, on to the show. Douglas Green is an independent Marxist historian. His previous books are Communist Insurgent, Blanqui's Politics of Revolution, and A Failure of Vision, Michael Harrington, and the Limits of Democratic Socialism, which we discussed last year. His writing has appeared in a number of outlets, including Left Voice, Monthly Review Online, and Counterpunch. Doug Green, welcome back to the New Books Network. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. 
Yeah, so to kick things off, I always like to have guests introduce themselves at the beginning of episodes. So for people who maybe didn't hear us talk last summer, um, could you maybe just introduce yourself uh, to listeners real quick and tell us what you tend to be writing and researching on? Sure. My name is Doug Green. I'm a Marxist historian living in Massachusetts. I do a lot of history, theory, philosophy, uh, political theory, that kind of thing, all from a you know Marxist communist perspective. I'm the author of three books. So there's an off book called Communist Insurgent, Blanqui's Politics of Revolution. That's on a French communist from the 19th century named Louis-Auguste Blanqui. Second book called A Failure Vision, Michael Harrington and the Limits of Democratic Socialism, which is about the founder of the Democratic Socialists of America named Michael Harrington. And this book, uh, The Dialectics of Saturn. Yeah, so uh, to kick things off from that, a good place to begin here might be unpacking the phrase dialectics of Saturn. So Harrison Fluss, who wrote the introduction, writes, quote, the dialectic of Saturn is a pseudo-dialectic since it does not point to any genuine resolution and what is needed is not Benjamin Walter Benjamin's astrology, but Marxist astronomy, end quote. So I'm wondering if to begin, you could unpack the phrase dialectics of Saturn and why broadly you see it only describing rather than explaining um, the Stalinist history um, or Marxist history of the 20th century and what you're broadly hoping to replace it with. Sure. So dialectics of Saturn it goes all the way back to the French Revolution, when at the height of the terror, both conservatives and even moderates and, and revolutionaries uttered the, you know, the phrase like a revolution is like Saturn, it will des uh, it'll eat its own children. And that is reference, obviously, to Greco-Roman mythology about the god Saturn who ate its own children. So it became kind of this almost this cliche and adage among you know, anyone who was opposed to revolutions that, oh, a revolution is, it may promise liberation and a new world, but it'll just end up, you know, with tyranny, with purges, with terror and despotism. And that phrase, you know, was used obviously to describe the French Revolution, but later was applied to pretty much every revolution, the Russian, the Chinese, etc. that all revolutions, you know, will just They'll eat their own. They'll, it will just end up with new oppressors. And it's, in a certain way, it's almost describing like a revolution as something that has some kind of like inherent defect in it that is bound to go bad. You know, it may be like original sin or it's like it's written in the stars, like, you know, the pseudoscience of astrology, etc. And it doesn't really explain anything. And it's also the fact, like when you look at when Marx was, because uh, I, how I also kind of drew out the phrase is there are different versions of the dialectic of Saturn. So a conservative, you know, will see it as kind of this bolt from the blue, something demonic. And again, the, the religious imagery is like intentional there. Or if you're in favor of, say, you know, you see it as like, well, like uh, the Stalinists, they see it uh, as the unfolding of uh, history itself, as historical necessity. And it, some of it may be tragic or regrettable, but it's kind of built into the system. You need this dialectic. And Marx used, you know, differentiated his position when he was writing on the, the French coup d'etat of Louis Bonaparte in the 1850s. He said that there's these 
fatalists, there's these necessitarians, and he was putting forward his own view on the dynamics of the class struggle in his famous 18th Brumaire. And I think that a similar three-part division exists in how like the Soviet Union is viewed. You have like conservative anti-communists who see it as this bolt from the blue and there are different versions of that. And then you see people in the camp of Western Marxism and the communist parties who see it as the unfolding of history itself. And what I'm trying to replace it with is not this moralism and mysticism, this angels and demons, you know, to, to riff from Dan Brown, but to look at how can we actually have a materialist understanding of these events, of how the Soviet Union ended up where it was, and that it's based in the class struggle that doesn't see like some kind of something written in the stars that is our inevitable destiny, but rather that there were there there are alternatives and that part of the reason to do this is to say like it's not only not written in the stars, but the possibilities for a non-Stalinist communism remained open. Yeah. So to jump off that and get into the history you tell, you start with the ways in which many conservatives and reactionaries have often described revolutionary politics with biological terminology. So that Hitler relied heavily on this rhetoric will probably not surprise most people. But you also discuss figures like the Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn, as well as Winston Churchill. I'm wondering if you could maybe unpack the rhetoric a bit, explain the language, as well as the ideological threads this rhetoric ties together. Sure. So when modern medicine kind of developed in the 19th century, there's this idea or, you know, obviously based in modern medicine, the, you know, viruses, you know, bacteria that undermine the body. And applied to politics, it's like, where does like the, these revolutions come from? And originally for the French Revolution, they had seen like it was reason itself. But, you know, with reactionaries in the 19th century, they see this bacterial agent, this virus, and they saw it as like something corrosive to the nation, to the class society, which in the, and became noted as the Jew or the subversive Jew. And you saw this rhetoric in like the uh, famous forgery from Tsarist Russia called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And for the Russian Tsar, that was the cause of, of the revolutionary movements was Jews. And when the, after the revolution happened, the Russian counter-revolutionaries saw they had, uh, there were divisions within them, but one of the, basically their common ideological glue was anti-Semitism, that Jew and Bolshevik and communists were the same. This idea of this universalist view and for Churchill, now Churchill is kind of like a more mainstream version of this because he likes, you know, Zionist Jews, but he doesn't like these internationalist Jews. And he sees like this is a long tradition going all the way back to the Illuminati and Weishaupt and all the way to the present with obviously Trotsky, Rosa Luxemburg and all of them. And that these and that this is just this bacterial agent that's going to destroy like society and. So that's where he's coming from. Hitler comes at it from, he uses a lot of the same rhetoric, but it is much more obviously openly genocidal because when the, the, you know, the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, that was seen as a racial ideological war and they're eliminating the Jews was eliminating the agent of Bolshevism, of communism. And for Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he has, you know, he, he can 
he has like this anti-Semitic uh, stew in a lot of his writings. Like he'll point out, well, all these guards in these camps, you know, the gulags were, they were Jewish or these administrators were Jewish. And he'll point out about the Jewish leaders of like the Russian revolution. And it's tied, you know, to like his, his uh, Orthodox Christianity. And at times he uses it in code and he's a little subdued about it. But, you know, people who understand that code, like say the American neo-Nazi David Duke, can figure out, oh, he's talking about the Jews. He's blaming the Jews. And this rhetoric can get repeated it in terms of like how McCarthyism talked about communists as like an international criminal conspiracy. That may not have been openly anti-Semitic, but it has the same kind of view that this, that communism, Stalinism, because they never differentiate between them, is just this corrosive virus that this conspiracy and whenever you see communism talked about as some kind of conspiracy with tentacles everywhere that's corroding like the the healthy nation, it comes out of this, that this very reactionary view, which is very prevalent still on the far right. Yeah. In the next chapter, you look at uh, George Orwell, the self-proclaimed socialist who wrote both fiction and nonfiction, looking at how power and oppression play out in society. However, you argue that while a strong writer, Orwell's capacity as an analyst leave him unable to understand dynamics such as Stalinism or totalitarianism more broadly. His novel 1984 being a prime example of his lack of any real analysis. Uh, could you explain what you see going on in his writings? Yeah, I mean, Orwell is an interesting figure. When he becomes a socialist, when he's writing books like The Road to Wigan Pier or Homage to Catalonia, it's very clear he's on the side of the suffering working class, that he wants some kind of dramatic change in society. But he really will look, and he's a very good, you know, he's a good writer describing things, etc. Like his, his Homage to Catalonia is probably some of like the best war reporting of the 20th century. But it doesn't really go deeper. Even when he's looking for change in, say, The Road to Wicked Pier, he's like, you know, we don't need things like theory or, you know, a worldview or to really understand these dynamics. People kind of already instinctively know we just need to fight for the common decency. So he really can't understand the dynamics of, you know, capitalism. It's very surface level. And even his book on home, you know, the Spanish Civil War, which I really like it, but he not only doesn't understand like the causes of the war and a lot of the deeper divisions between the communist party, the anarchists and others, he's in a militia that is actually in favor of, of forming a centralized red army. And he makes it out like, Oh, it's just these anarchists and the centralized red army that are the options, which is, you know, or a, a centralized army proposed by the government. He really doesn't grasp that. And he, so that he gets those crucial details wrong. And, He's, you know, despite, I, you know, I think some on the left think he's like sympathetic to Trotsky and forms of Bolshevism. He actually isn't. If you read his like letters, he's like, you know, Trotsky was as just responsible for Stalinism as anyone. Bolshevism had that written into it. And so he's very surface level in terms of his understanding. Like he can, you know, under, you know, t talk about the power of propaganda and manipulation and all that very well, but he doesn't really understand where it comes from. And he kind of sees it as built into like, but there's something in human nature, this sadistic lust for power and cruelty 
you know, this wanton, you know, to torture people. And that comes out very well in 1984, which is, you know, obviously a very powerful novel, but he sees no way out of that. And he just thinks that power is its own thing, that there's really no ideas behind it. And he just thinks that that's the inevitable fate that people really can't escape from it. You know, obviously some of the characters have these internalized dilemmas, but he he has his own, and it's interesting, he's doing all this while he, he's always advancing his own idiosyncratic socialism, which at times can be more left-wing, like after the Spanish Civil War. But by the time of the Cold War, he's saying, like, I will side with America, and he will give, like, names to, like, you know, police agencies. So the thing with Orwell is he can describe a lot of things very well. But if you're looking for like how it works and he actually kind of almost admits this in 1984, the why, he really can't get at that. And he just kind of sees it, you know, this bolt from the blue is just this sadistic big brother that will forever dominate people, which he sees as, you know, the same in Stalinism, Nazism and what have you. Yeah. In the next chapter, uh, you look at a different history or kind of theory of totalitarianism. You write, quote, while it fails as a theory of history, uh, this account of totalitarianism served two other major functions. First, it acted as a convenient rationale for the Cold War against the Soviet Union. Secondly, totalitarianism was the ideological foundation of a new counter-enlightenment project, which sought to discredit the very idea of an alternative to capitalism, end quote. So there's a lot of figures who would play a part in this history that you cover, but I'm wondering if we could look at the underlying ideas in play, particularly a hostility not just to certain progressive political goals, but even reason itself, which was blamed for Stalinism. What's the underlying idea or political project being developed here? Yeah, for for totalitarianism, they imagine, you know, it's before the Cold War, it's up in the air. You know, different left-wing thinkers are using it, different right-wing thinkers. With the Cold War, it kind of gets codified by people like Hannah Arendt and like the U.S. State Department, etc., as this uh, complete and total control over society, a permanent apparatus of terror, you know, that is brutalizing people, reaching into their souls. And at first, the theorists of totalitarianism are not opposed to reason. Hannah Arendt in Origins of Totalitarianism is not. She does become later. And even uh, what's uh, Brzezinski and Fredericks, who write, I think, The Origins of Totalitarianism, they actually say the French Revolution is not totalitarian, you know, but obviously communism is. You see this interesting change in in the 60s, you know, onward, and it's sort of prefigured by someone like Jacob Talman, who sees that this idea of reason, that we can transform the world, you know, according, you know, that human beings can not only understand the world and transform it, that that was first put into practice in the French Revolution, but it kind of only went part way, and that it really became totalitarian with Bolshevism and Marxism and obviously Stalin. And this was picked up essentially by what I call the counter-enlightenment. And they are trying to find, like, what is the germ? What is the cause for Soviet or communist totalitarianism? And, you know, Solzhenitsyn brings it in, Kalikowski, Francois Ferre, and they're saying, like, you know, the Bolsheviks, they have their forebearers. It's not just Marx, but it's the Jacobins. It's Rousseau. It's reason, this idea that man, human beings can rationally comprehend the world and change it. 
I think I quote at one point the famous American conservative Whitaker Chambers, who says, you know, communism, it's man's old, it's the oldest faith, you know, the second oldest faith of, you know, you can know, you know, you have knowledge and then you can use that to change things. So they're looking at the, the germ for them, this bolt from the blue is reason. And they see it as corrosive and taking its final, you know, fully developed form with communism and Bolshevism. And that means that the anti-communists, I think, in and this this uh, is interesting to know, they're attacking people like Spinoza, Hegel, Rousseau, Robespierre. And I think it's actually as wrong as I think they are about, you know, a lot their analysis of the Soviet Union and Stalin, etc. I think they're actually correct to attack those things because communism, you know, in its, you know, in its non-Stalinist form is actually we we do advocate say that we can actually understand the world, that there is nothing beyond our ability to reason and that our reason, we can understand natural and social laws and change the world and reorder it. And I think they're actually correct to attack those because they actually put their finger on that pulse. And that's something I would argue that Marxists and leftists should be willing to defend is reason is Spinoza, Hegel, and, and this ability to rationally comprehend the world because when they're they're not just attacking the Soviet Union or Stalin or China or whatever they part this project is meant to basically discredit any idea any worldview that says you know that human beings can reshape the world that you know this human Marxist humanist idea that you know people have that ability because if you it's so it, it's not about rationally understanding you know the Soviet Union. It is almost, it's certain like religious ideas about, you know, man is fallen, man is corrupt, there's original sin, you know, the secular version is human nature of this. So we shouldn't try, we should just kind of accept. So it's partly an ideologic, you know, partly a weapon, obviously, in the Cold War against the Soviet Union, but it is also an ideological weapon, you know, against any kind of enlightenment idea that human beings can change the world, which just, you know, is meant to attack any form of socialism, Marxism, you know, what have you, leftist idea. Yeah. Turning to the other end of the political spectrum, you look at some Marxist responses to Stalinism. While Stalin had his critics, others saw him and his means as the only viable road to communism. You write, quote, this brought um, out the central dilemma of historical necessity uh, that gripped figures such as Arthur Kostler and Morris Merleau-Ponty. Uh, were all the Soviet Union's compromises just the necessary price that the working class must pay to, re- to reach freedom, or were rationalizations of historical necessity just cynical excuses for indefensible crimes and totalitarianism? And quote, given that it is such a crucial horizon for a lot of these discussions, could you unpack the idea of historical necessity here and how it played out? Sure. Uh, historical necessity is it's it's this idea that there are natural and social laws in the world and that we can rationally comprehend them and that you know we can once we learn these laws we can operate freely as hegel and Le- and engels say you know ne- you know knowledge of necessity equals freedom so if you understand like the natural and social law lo- or the social laws of capitalism you understand it's got these built-in contradictions the rate of profit falls, that there's the material necessity for revolution from that. And the next stage of history is, is socialism and the proletariat has that role. 
And this is kind of basic Orthodox Marxism, you know, obviously, you know, built in with Hegel, etc. And for members of the communist parties, they said that, you know, not only is are these natural and social laws, and that the next stage is socialism and communism, but the only way we can actually get there is through, you know, Stalin's policies. Everything they're doing is in accordance with the will of history to get us to that next stage. So when they're purging all the old Bolsheviks, that's part of the will of history. When we're doing all these compromises internationally with the Popular Front and pacts with capitalism, it's all necessary. So this idea of historical necessity is kind of like this overarching idea that a lot of figures in like the mainstream communist parties and a lot of Western Marxists adopt saying like, you know, the Soviet Union is doing all this, but it's part for a greater purpose. It's for the greater good. And obviously people, someone like Arthur Kessler saw like, you know, this is like a maddening logic that will, you know, it's, it's actually totalitarian. It will consume your soul. In, in the process. And even Merleau-Ponty at the kind of the very end rejected that as well, even if he tried to defend uh, it on slightly different grounds. Yeah. So continuing with the Western Marxists, uh, you look at numerous figures who all in their own way wrestled with Stalinism, the responses ranging somewhere between passive resignation to fellow traveling to open acceptance, with many kind of fluctuating between these throughout their lives. So if there's any in particular you want to talk about, go for it. But I think the one worth picking out is Domenico Lacerdo, uh, who receives an entire very lengthy appendix from you picking apart his book, Stalin, Critique of the Black Legend. Uh, so there are a lot of particular claims he makes that range from questionable to outrageous, but underlying them in your view is a deeper problem. You write, quote, Lacerdo's defense of Stalin relies not only on distorting the historical record, he also remains utterly blind to Stalinism's Thermidorian nature and the damage it wrought to socialism. Could you unpack this underlying misunderstanding on Lacerdo's part? Sure. So Lacerdo is an Italian Marxist. He passed away about five years ago. And I do want to preface by saying this. He's actually, in many other respects of his work on Hegel, on Nietzsche, and liberalism, has done a great deal of great scholarship. I, I I recommend like all those works, but he's also someone who comes out of this Marxist, Leninist, Stalinist background. And he, in that sense, he's very similar to people like Bertolt Brecht, Walter Benjamin, et cetera, who they, they make their compromises and their defenses of Stalin. And Lacerdo, in one of his books called Stalin, the History and Critique of a Black Legend, he's, he's basically writing his own summation of, of Stalin. And it's interesting because he's saying that revolutions, uh, they start off with these utopian ideas of egalitarianism, internationalism, universalism. But he doesn't think that's actually sustainable for revolutions. They eventually have to embrace things like realism, pragmatism, and like the rule of law and hierarchy and markets actually as well. So he thinks that People, someone like Trotsky represents revolution in that early egalitarian phrase, and Stalin is the more realist. And he thinks that that is necessary for Stalin to overcome Trotsky. And he's actually the person who coins the specific phrase dialectic of Saturn in that book. 
So he says, you know, there's a lot of regrettable things about Stalin that he does, even if he's kind of defending some of the, the ba really bad stuff like the anti-cosmopolitan campaign or the Moscow trials. But he's like, this was all necessary, that there really was no alternative. And that's actually something else that the historical necessita uh, necessitarians believe that, that not only is Stalin necessary, but there is actually no alternative that someone like Trotsky is either a fool or he's standing against the will of history. And Lacerdo more or less embraces that. And because Lacerdo embraces that, you know, that revolutions have to go to this phase of realism or Thimidorianism, is he doesn't see the damage it does. He kind of overlooks, like, you know, the damage the Popular Front did to revolutionary socialists in, in the colonial world or in the struggle against fascism. And he defends, you know, as regrettable necessity, like the ferocity of the purges and Stalin's leadership of the Red Army during World War II, which was not actually all that good, I would argue. And because he kind of accepts that revolutions have to go to this Thimidorian logic, is he really just kind of loses the plot on communism as like this new society that is, you know, egalitarian and universalist. And this leads him, you know, he he not only defends the Stalin period, but also um, Dengis China. And that's a very uninspiring vision for the future. If you think like present day China is some kind of, you know, shining example of socialism with all the market uh, reforms, etc. But Lacerdo sees that as fine. He sees that as necessary. And because he kind of doesn't see that, you know, what's how Stalin and Stalinism like rolled back a lot of gains of the revolution, he's blind to what it actually costs in terms of inside the Soviet Union for the revolutionary project and internationally what it meant for a lot of the world's communist parties and and the you know the tragic uh, mistakes and betrayals and what it did to a lot of activists in them. Yeah, so from there, uh, turning to Trotsky, who you just mentioned, as well as his contemporaries, you note that the French Revolution was often a lens through which people tried to understand the Russian Revolution for both good and ill. Uh, and even Lenin allowed some of this, granting that the Bolsheviks could be seen as the heirs to the Jacobins, albeit with some philosophical changes and qualifications. Uh, could you speak to some of these debates and the comparisons that were being developed? Sure. I mean, a lot of these comparisons go actually all the way back to Engels and Marx, who see Russia, czarist Russia, as facing its own French, or its own 1789, because they see a decrepit monarchy, modernizing capitalism, rising intelligentsia, working class, etc. So in many respects, the situations look similar to people like Marx and Engels, but even early Russian Marxists, with people like Plekhanov, uh, Martov, they're all inspired by the French Revolution because they all see themselves as potentially playing different parts in it. So I think Trotsky probably does it the most, but he's certainly not alone. Uh, you know, Plekhanov and Lenin in their own way see like the type of party they need is some kind of Jacobin style party, albeit, you know, more proletarian, etc. And so the French Revolution inspired, it, sh it shows them on the one hand, like, how the situation in Russia is similar to the French, uh, you know, but also the, the Jacobins provide a, a living or an example of revolutionary government. So everyone is also looking like, are we going to be, who's going to be Robespierre in this revolution? Who's going to be Don Todd and all of this? But also they're looking for examples to avoid, like how do we avoid a Napoleon? 
how do we avoid a Thimidor, you know, this counter-revolutionary backslash. And in 1917, it's, it's interesting because there are different, no one actually, there are different, like, I would, I kind of make the point in the book, like, oh, different people are kind of auditioning for the role of Bonaparte. You have Kerensky, Kornilov, but no one really plays it. But ultimately, you saw, like, Lenin essentially is playing the role of Robespierre, and Trotsky, to a certain extent, is playing the role of Danton. But everyone is also like, okay, the Bolsheviks won, but when are they going to have their Napoleon? And it actually is in, it plays into like a lot of debates in the 1920s when you know Stalin is kind of emerging on top and Trotsky is fighting for power because everyone is looking like Trotsky is the leader of the Red Army. He's very charismatic. He's very young, so he's going to be Napoleon. And it's whispered in the party there, that actually kind of is one of the sparks for Stalin forming a block with pe- like other people who are opposed to Trotsky. But it's interesting, too, because Trotsky's more aware of those comparisons than anyone else. He's like, I'm not going to do a military coup. I'm not going to have the Red Army step in because that would create the very situation that I want to oppose. So everyone is, and even it's also interesting in the 1920s, Stalin's like, you know, we can't just start guillotining people and shooting them. You know, where will it end? which is ironic considering what happens like a decade later. So everyone is kind of involved in these debates as seeing the French Revolution as a precedent that inspires them, but they do want to avoid like ending up with a Napoleon type figure. And it is inspiring them on how they, you know, view party organization on the programs they develop and all of this. And they also do see themselves as heirs to this experience. I mean, obviously, a crucial difference is, you know, the French Revolution is a revolution of the bourgeoisie and the Jacobins have this kind of utopian idea of like this, you know, society of reason of small property holders, whereas the Bolsheviks are Marxists and they see this as a working class revolution that will inaugurate international revolution and a communist age of reason. And I guess just to finish off is people internationally also saw the Bolsheviks through this prism. There were obviously the French, early French communists, including the historian Albert Matias, who was a fervent admirer of the Jacobins, but also an admirer of Lenin. And Victor Serge and uh, Gramsci, Andre Nin, all of them, they see the Bolsheviks as heirs to this. So yes, there is um, this carrying on of this legacy, but also I would just to conclude in a dialectical way, because they don't see it as just a simple repetition because it does, it is involving different classes as well. Yeah. So turning more specifically to Trotsky and his alternative, uh, I think it's worth first unpacking Stalinism as Trotsky saw it. Uh, Trotsky argues that Stalin was a sort of political centrist vacillating between different political poles in the highly unstable economic situation of the newly formed, but still very economically primitive Soviet Union. Uh, The result was that as class tensions continued to dominate in both Russia and across the world, Stalin failed to push the revolution forward and was therefore forced to retreat and eventually collapse into the idea of building socialism in one country. So could you unpack Trotsky's critique of Stalin here? And more critically, how does it differ from the other critiques of Stalinism we've been discussing? What sets Trotsky's approach to understanding Stalinism apart? It's a great question. I think to start off is Trotsky, his analysis of Stalin changes and develops throughout the course of the 20s and 30s. 
at first in the 20s, he sees Stalin as, you know, this centrist figure, as this representative of the bureaucracy and a conservative uh, influence on the revolution. But he doesn't think like the revolution has been quite like lost and that there is still a possibility of reversing it. And so internally in the Soviet Union, he's looking at, you know, how Stalin is like in the 20s is supporting the kulaks and is a conservative uh, influence within the international, pushing all kinds of collaborationist uh, motives. And in the 30s, he kind of changes uh, his view because he's still viewing Stalin as this, you know, this uh, centrist, this vacillating figure. But after, you know, before 1933, he still sees the possibility of reform, that we can revitalize the Soviets and the party and retake the revolution on a more socialist road. After 1933, you know, in the rise of Hitler, he thinks that reform of the Comintern and the Soviet Union by extension is impossible. So he imagines a political revolution. And in what what he and his analysis of Stalinism is he sees he doesn't he it's kind of a multiple part. On the one hand, he sees Listen, the Soviet Union has, by the end of the 1930s, it has created an industrial base, a nationalized economy and planned economy, all stuff he thinks is like achievements of the revolution, stuff worth defending. But he thinks that Stalin politically has essentially expropriated the working class, shut them out of political power in the Soviets, and this bureaucratic clique around Stalin is essentially ruling the country. And that Stalin is still with this Bonapartist figure. And to, but he believes that because of the vacillating of the bureaucracy, on the one hand, they'll defend the nationalized economy against imperialism, which Trotsky's like, yeah, that's we should defend that against imperialism. But he feels that there's this tendency for them to they're parasitic upon it, and that there's the danger of them restoring capitalism. So Trotsky has this alternative of political revolution, which is the working class, the Soviet working class will rise up that they will overthrow the bureaucracy and restore Soviet democracy. And I think partly what makes Trotsky's position, I think, different than many of the others is he was also developing it in real time in actual struggle inside the Soviet Union as part of the leadership and in exile. So there's that level to it. The other part, I think, is he, he, he avoids this angels and demons type uh, view Whereas anti-communists just see this, the Soviet Union as this godless hell spot that needs to, you know, that Western capitalism is the way to go. And that the, you know, the, the Stalinists or the members of the communist parties, they see it as the unfolding of historical necessity. We really can't criticize it because every compromise they make is historically necessary. And Trotsky doesn't have that kind of fatalism. He argues, listen, there are certainly accomplishments of the revolution, but we need to get back on the socialist road, you know, get back to Soviet power. And I think if you actually look at like Marcuse, Brecht, all these different people uh, from Western Marxism, is they can't envision going actually back to, you know, some kind of Soviet rule or, you know, working class rule. And I think that's something that really distinguishes Trotsky's position because he avoids, you know, the, those um, dangerous uh, reefs, you know, the Sicula and Caribbis to use the, the another Greek myth, uh, reference there and he says like this is you know he advances like a marxist materialist position of this with a program of revolutionary renewal and 
that I think really distinguishes Trotsky's position from a lot of uh, the anti-communist and you know the the Stalinist position. Yeah, you already kind of alluded to some of the basics of it, but since a major thesis of the book is that Trotsky did offer this alternative to Stalinism, it's worth unpacking it a bit more. Um, so to start with, there's the domestic front where the newly developing working class was. Uh, politically disempowered and increasingly disillusioned and isolated, especially kind of throughout the 1920s. So what were Trotsky's plans for pushing things forward here in terms of continued economic and cultural transformation? Interne- uh, domestically, first of all, that Trotsky is essentially taking the baton from Lenin, who at the end of his life is developing these ideas on electrifying the country, industrializing the country, and in pretty much bringing a cultural revolution to the peasantry and the working class. Lenin dies before he can really do anything beyond kind of write this stuff down. So it doesn't go anywhere with him. And Trotsky kind of picks it up and develops it far more. On the one hand, he, you know, he agrees that the country needs to be industrialized because that would increase the social weight of the working class in, in, in Soviet Russia. Because obviously a dictatorship of the proletariat, you need proletarians in there. But that working class not only needs to have a greater social weight from industrialization, but it needs to understand modern ideas, culture, enlightenment, and that's part of the cultural revolution. I mean, obviously, cultural revolution is more associated with Mao, but you know, Trotsky and Lenin have their own version to it. The other thing, you know, this this also implies, you know, democratizing the party and the Soviets as well, so the working class can effectively and politically rule. And the other thing is there's on certain segments of the left, there's like, well, Trotsky and Stalin essentially have the same ideas on collectivization, on the you know disdain for the peasantry, which I don't think is true if you actually look at what Trotsky is advocating in terms of agriculture. He's basically like, we're going to have a gradual collectivization and to satisfy peasant demand, we're going to bring in certain goods through international trade so we can focus industry on certain higher priority targets until industries developed, et cetera. And then we can shift. So Trotsky, neither Trotsky nor the left opposition advocated forced collectivization. And to be fair, no one in the Bolshevik party did. It was That's actually like Stalin very unique on that point. Now it's true Trotsky's position was not adopted and there were other alternatives. There were different people in the left opposition who had their own ideas like Brzezinski, uh, Prio Brzezinski. There was market socialism from Nikolai Bukharin. And the part of the reason I bring this up is um, that there was an alternative to Stalinism from the communist left. I don't think Bukharin's is particularly appealing because it's market socialist. But Trotsky had his own alternative that it may not have been able to potentially reverse like the bureaucratization of the USSR, but it could have slowed it down until they, you know, there was international revolution. And it's important to note that these alternatives did exist and that Stalinism wasn't something written in the stars. And I, the last point I would make is there's kind of uncertain segments of the left, like almost also a, a vulgar Trotsky's. It was like, well, Stalin's bad, Trotsky's good, but they don't actually look at like what Trotsky's advocating. And it's actually important to note that practically, you know, like there's all this stuff and it's like, it's actually a coherent package. It's not just that Trotsky's a good guy. I do think he's a good guy, but I also think he had good ideas too, good practical, uh, 
programs, and that's actually important to note when you're discussing this, that it's not just that these are bad, you know, good and bad people, but what do they represent? What are they advocating? And if you can kind of look at like the different programs on offer, you can kind of see, well, you know, that this was, that Stalinism wasn't, there wasn't just this train of history that with no detours that, you know, there, there could have been this detour or that detour. And, you know, I think Trotsky definitely represented one, a, a communist one. Yeah. Continuing with Trotsky's alternative, he also continued to advocate for revolutionary internationalism. Uh, at one point, responding to Bukharin's claims that Russia could abstract away from the international situation, he said in one speech, if we accomplish this whole abstraction, then of course the rest is easy. But we cannot, and that is the whole point. It is possible to walk naked in the streets of Moscow in January if we can abstract ourselves from the weather and the police. But I am afraid that this abstraction would fail, end quote. So beneath his kind of trademark humor, could you unpack the critical point Trotsky was making here and what he was trying to advocate for as an alternative? Right. So Bukharin, who was at this point allied with Stalin, is basically, we can go it alone and kind of more or less ignore the international situation. And if that was true, then Trotsky wouldn't have a leg to stand on. But that's actually not true because the Soviet Union was surrounded by hostile imperialist powers there was this whole, you know, international system of capitalism that, you know, was threatening to erode the revolution. Trotsky is saying, you know, we we are facing this constant threat. This the Soviet Union is too underdeveloped, etc. And it's necessary for the revolution to spread abroad and to give that priority. And obviously, he has like, you know, he's advocating, you know, how the common turn can foster revolutionary vanguards in different countries. And it often failed to do, you know, in places like Germany, et cetera. And that there was also because socialism in one country was prioritizing um, the development of the Soviet Union, it meant in practice, maybe it was never explicitly stated, but in practice, it meant the subordination of the communist parties in the world revolution to the needs of Soviet diplomacy. Because the Soviet Union, as time goes on, is becomes more willing to make deals with capitalist powers and undercut revolutionary efforts abroad. And you see the different swings in Soviet and in, in Comintern policy often reflecting that. So um, when Hitler comes to power, they had previously followed the third period, which you know that they saw the social democrats as social fascists. Well, they abandoned that, and instead we got to form you you know these broad popular fronts with. Um, capitalist parties and social democrats, which means revolution is on the back burner. In places like the Spanish Civil War, it means that the communist parties become a break on popular struggle so the Soviet Union can hopefully gain an alliance with Britain and France. And again, you see this shift in um, the 1930s later with the, the Hitler-Stalin pact, where communist parties have to defend that. And all of this, you know, the, they, the, the, the Soviet leadership thinks is necessary, but by doing this, by making these kind of deals, is they actually undercut the defense of the Soviet Union and they like deliver some big body blows to a lot of communist parties throughout the world. So on the one hand, Bukharin is saying this, that they can abstract, but both him and Stalin actually do know that they can't, but they're more willing out of, it flows from socialism in one country, that if you prioritize the Soviet Union above the international revolution, then you're willing to cut deals and act, try and act like a regular state. 
even though imperialism is never going to see you as a regular state. And because you're also in, you know, prioritizing Soviet interests, you undercut the, uh, you know, the interests of the world revolution, which you pretty much see, I think, with the, the Stalin leadership in the 30s, 40s, etc., that what happens. And I think that's also what Trotsky's saying. On the one hand, as I've mentioned, you know, he obviously has this program for how to internally develop the Soviet Union, but he does prioritize the international revolution. He's not willing to abstract the Soviet Union from that. So that's, I think, his major points. In the book's final chapter, you look at two more writers, Viktor Sergei and Isaac Deutscher, both of whom were closer to Trotsky's position on a number of issues and even wrote some very sympathetic works about him, but who ultimately diverged from his critique. So in Sergei's case, he eventually collapsed into a more reformist direction, what you call Western retreat, while Deutscher believed the Soviet bureaucracy could reform itself back in the right direction after Stalin's death, what you call Eastern reconciliation. Uh, what do you see going on in these two? I mean, I see them as kind of Trotsky's position, you know, is watching walking a tightrope in a certain sense, because you want to defend the Soviet Union from imperialism, but also oppose its ruling bureaucracy. And in the case of either of them, they kind of forget one or the other. So Sergei, or Serge, who, um, you know, he had been through the labor camps and he had a history as an anarchist and a Bolshevik. He kind of sees, you know, the, the, the Soviet unions, its bureaucracy as totalitarian as the greatest danger to the working class. And he just forgets that there are elements of that to defend. And he becomes very politically isolated, as particularly in his last years in Mexico. And he just sees really no alternative beyond like some kind of social democratic view. He always maintains this nostalgia about the Soviet Union until his very death. But in practice, he's pretty much a social democrat because he really can't envision some kind of revolutionary Marxist alternative to that. Deutscher is kind of the opposite view. He sees the achievements of the planned economy and success in World War II and he's and he's not blind to what you know, like the purges and like and Stalin. He actually said Stalinism got Russia out of barbarism through barbarous means. He's very clear about that. But he thinks that you know, like the Stalinists, that Thimidor, that this kind of um, realism that Stalin represented was something necessary. But the thing with Deutscher is he doesn't. Be, he's never this complete apologist because he does also say like. Okay, Stalin has done his necessary work. Now they can kind of reform things. So he has a lot of faith in Khrushchev. He kind of looks glowingly at Mao as an alternative at various times. And it's also interesting with both Serge and Deutscher is they never quite go all the way. They're definitely on that road. Again, Serge has that nostalgia. He's never quite an open anti-communist. I definitely would say he's on that road. And the thing with Deutscher is... He's not like members of the communist parties who will defend like the Moscow trials and, and all this. Like Deutscher, he generally does support reformers in the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union, although he does support sending in the tanks in 1956 into Hungary because he thinks that they're jeopardizing reform. So he doesn't want revolutionary outbreaks from below. And I think the thing both their case positions kind of share is they do retreat from any idea that, you know, Soviet war or worker, that there really was an alternative to Stalinism. 
and that the the Trotsky position kind of leads them into, in one case, reconciling with like the Western camp of social democracy, which is very far from Marxism, obviously. And Deutscher, who kind of sees like the possibility of bureaucratic reform in the Soviet Union, the Eastern Bloc, which pretty much was, you know, to Deutscher's credit, he didn't live to see Gorbachev and like these various reformist efforts in the Eastern Bloc fail. But I think in his case, it just, it led to a lot of apologeta, even if it's more sophisticated than, you know, members of the communist parties. Yeah. To close things off, I'd like to ask why you wrote this book and what you're hoping contemporary leftists get out of it. So to quote Harrison Floss's introduction again, he writes, quote, if this dialectic of Saturn truly governs our fate, the left is made to act out its own psychodrama where the abstract wish that something be done replaces what really needs to be done, end quote. So in closing this conversation, what does it mean to talk about a contemporary left that still in so many ways remains haunted by this dialectic of Saturn? And what would it look like to start moving out of its shadow? It's a great question. I think to start off with is to Harrison, um, who is one of my best friends, person who not only wrote the introduction, but was, uh, the book is dedicated to him. And the book was originally actually started between the two of us to write about Domenico Lucerto and, and Stalinism. But for personal reasons, Harrison couldn't continue w- with it. So I took it up alone. And it became clear to me that Lucerto was worth writing about, but probably not a book writing about. And I think the way to look at it is it was a way to kind of take account of the experience of Stalinism, which casts a long shadow over the 20th century and any discussion of socialism. Even though the Soviet Union has been gone for 30 years and Stalin's been gone for 80 or whatever it is at this point, um, is... Even though that's all happened, whenever we discuss, well, what's your alternative to capitalism? Someone, I think, with you know the best intentions, is going to say, well, isn't they going to end up with gulags and purges and stuff? And it's something you actually have to take account of. And I think, on the one hand, you actually do have to take account of what the anti-communists are saying because they're so influential on you know every level of society. So you actually do have to answer what they're saying. If you think the Soviet Union is like the most genocidal totalitarian state in human history, you maybe should actually look at the evidence of that. And I think even if you reject all the anti-communist stuff, there's pretty much a lot about Stalin and the Soviet Union that's not super appealing that the communist parties would advance, which was very apologetic. And it's not very scientific in, term, in a Marxist sense. So you kind of got to, clear all this away to actually look at, you know, things. And I think if we actually have a materialist Marxist worldview and use that to soberly analyze the Soviet Union, we can say, listen, you know, the anti-communists are full of it, but the Stalinists are also kind of full of it too. And we can see that, that there is, it's not written in the stars that, um, things are going to end up this way. Cause if it is the case that you're going to end up with, you know, Stalinism every time, then, Obviously, a lot of people are going to say, why even fight for socialism if that's the best we got? But if you say, listen, we can actually have the potential of a non-Stalinist communism, then I think the possibilities for communism still remain open. And I think, you know, we do need to go back to, you know, Marxist orthodoxy in terms of, you know, really understanding historical necessity, going back to our Hegel, our Spinoza, etc., to understand the real historical laws and not this kind of fatalistic, almost like uh, 
you know, uh, the, the godlike general secretary who's controlling history or the, the demon-like, you know, godless uh, Stalin in, in the anti-communists. But we can understand the real laws of historical necessity and how that they're all alternatives, you know, even that, you know, Stalinism was actually historically unnecessary to socialism, that it actually, you know, eventually led to the restoration of capitalism. So I think partly to conclude is there's been a lot of talk over the last 10, 15 years about, you know, socialism, et cetera. So let, we actually do have to talk about the Soviet Union at one point and Stalinism. And we do actually have to have a balance sheet on that, on these figures who've analyzed it. And to, I think, to conclude like that, yeah, the anti-communists are wrong. The Stalinists are pretty much wrong too, but also that communism is not fated to be Stalinist, that the dialectics of Saturn are this moralism and mysticism. It's angels and demons, and we should reject that kind of uh, thinking from our movement and go back to uh, materialist Velshenstang and Marxism to uh, envision a new future. Yeah, that's a good, solid note to end on. So as a final question, I always like to ask, what, if anything, are you working on now? Any new books, articles, anything? I have, um, I do have a forthcoming article on Che and Mao, who unfortunately did not make it into my book. So hopefully that will be out fairly soon. The other piece is I do have a book that will hopefully be forthcoming next year on um, Karl Kautsky and and a lot of the revival of Kautskyism in terms of Lars Lee and other historians. So I'm looking forward to that. And I've also been doing research on John Brown and the American Civil War, so... Yeah, you got a lot cut out for you. So in the meantime, uh, Doug Green, thank you so much for coming back. Oh, thank you so much for having me.